0: Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart.
1: Chris, did you ever watch Unsolved Mysteries or any of those true crime shows?
0: Of course. I think when I think of this, there's a pair of shows that come to mind, Rescue 911, one of them and unsolved mysteries they were big on those reenactments telling the story of you know whatever the harrowing experience was but unsolved mysteries as well i know we've got a few fans of that around here tommy garcia one of our editors huge fan of that just had a really unique style and uh also the fact that they told really interesting stories about again to the to the name Unsolved Mysteries. Always fascinating.
1: I think now with streaming services, there's a lot more shows like that in that same vein. But I remember watching shows like that and Investigation Discovery with my sister as a kid, always intrigued with those cases where it seems like there are some pieces of the puzzle that are there, but there's not a solid answer at the end. And that is, unfortunately, the reality for a lot of families when it comes to missing person cases.
0: There are a lot of people that go missing, and in many cases, there are situations that just don't get solved right away. They can stay cold for years until maybe new evidence comes forward, or maybe a new detective with a fresh perspective helps find the answer everyone's been looking for. The case we're diving into today, it centers on a seemingly out-of-the-blue and bombshell confession that's really fascinating to watch and listen to. It recently happened in Roswell in southeast New Mexico.
1: We're talking about a case that not many people likely heard about, involving the disappearance of 69-year-old William Blodgett, who was reported missing in December of 2008. And just last month, a man came forward and said he knows what happened to Blodgett. I'm just trying to cover it up. You try to cover it up? Yeah. Okay.
0: I'm tired of living with my life sir. The guilt? Hell uh, uh, yeah.
1: That is the voice of Tony Ray Peralta after he'd called Roswell Police. Our investigative colleague, Ann Perrett, covered this case and joins us on the podcast today. Once again, thanks for being here, Ann. Thanks for having me. First off, you're a reporter. You cover lots of stories in your career, spanning in a couple of places in Michigan before coming to New Mexico. You know how some of these stories are without immediate answers. Have you covered a a case quite like this yet? Honestly, this one
2: was a big surprise. Um, Very unique in my opinion. I'd covered cold cases before, but those were typically solved by actual police work, new evidence coming forward, a new witness, something like that, testing some sort of evidence and finding, you know, the, the right clue there. But never um, uh, never anything like this. <laughs>
0: yeah, we encourage people to watch it. We'll put a link as well in the uh, news story that this podcast is posted to on krqe.com and also within the show notes here of this episode. On the surface, this doesn't seem like a missing person case that got a whole lot of media attention either. Um, it, it wasn't a student that went missing from campus or maybe a young woman listed as endangered by police. Those are often stories we think about that get tons of headlines, tons of attention. Gabby Petito being one of the most recent ones that came to mind. But for this case, do you feel that's a fair assessment that they didn't get a whole lot of media attention in the beginning?
2: Definitely. I mean, I was not here in 2008, but this was not one, even like looking through our archives that I saw really anything, um, any, anybody really talking about this one.
0: So how did you hear about this case of William Blodgett in Roswell? How did you start covering it?
2: We actually, we've received a press release to our email. I remember it being a Tuesday. I read every email that we get, but this one especially, yes, (laughs) (laughs) this one especially sparked interest. Um, I remembered just the headline saying um, man confesses to murder. I think it said either 14 years ago or in 2008 um, in Roswell. And, you know, press releases typically don't give you all of the nitty gritty details and all the color um, that really is what kind of captures our attention. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to file a public records request. Let me see what I can get. It said that he called 911 to make the confession. So I requested the uh, that 911 call as well as all of the video of them not only just responding and and you know, getting his actual confession on tape on camera, but then it had said in the press release that he led them to the body and they found the body. So I wanted to see what we could get from that as well.
0: Yeah. Just knowing that there's body camera video on pretty much every officer these days, just knowing there's gotta be more there.
2: Definitely. You knew it. There was going to be something interesting here.
0: you' was saying he uh, killed somebody a long while ago and he buried the house, some house of history. That's what he's like. So to show me where the house is. He's like, yeah, I'm going to show you. So that's, that's all we got right now. He doesn't know the address a long time ago.
1: That's it. Current. Nothing current. So um, I'm going to take him up there and see, see if he was willing to show me the house. And then we'll just, yeah. You know. What year? Huh? What year? I haven't figured out yet. I literally just was hearing
0: conversation stuff, so. What year was this at? remember? Okay. It's been, so long. it's been a long time. Okay. We're going to go all the way around over here. Okay. My car's way over there. So we're
1: going to walk this way. Yeah. And you did obtain the confession that led police investigators in Roswell to solving this missing person case of William Blodgett. Tell us first about the phone call Tony Ray Peralta made in May. So I did listen to this phone call and it's almost eerie
2: at first Every time the 911 dispatcher answers a call, they say, Tell me what's your emergency or tell me where you are. And he says, I'm at the All SUPs gas station, gives the location of the gas station. They say, Okay, what's the situation? He says, I killed someone. 911,
0: what's the address of your emergency?
1: Hello, 911.
0: Hello? Hi, this is 911. Yes, I'm at uh, Allsteps by Big Lot.
1: Okay. Is this the cop?
0: Sir, tell me exactly what happened.
2: Well, I killed somebody.
0: You killed somebody? Yes, sir. Okay, and you said you're at the Allsteps over there, our country club in Maine, right? Yes. Yes. Okay.
2: The dispatcher, you can kind of tell, is a little hesitant, and he's like, okay, sir, Um, and you you killed someone. Like, questions him, and he says yes. And then there's kind of a pause, and he just hands the phone back. I mean, we find out later he had borrowed somebody's phone, and you hear him go, okay, thanks.
0: Hold on one second for me. Okay, I'm going to get some help over there for you. There you go. Thank you. What's your name, sir?
1: Hello?
2: He just hands the phone back. Doesn't say bye. The dispatcher you hear for the next several minutes, like, uh, hello, sir? Uh, Hello? But you can also hear him, like, you know, typing Typing. really quickly, trying to, like, get police out there. And um, the guy's like, okay, we good? This is Tony. Peralta. Are we And the guy's like, "Oh, sir. Okay. Hello. Are you still there?" Like it was just so weird. He just really he's, I think, realized. Oh, I didn't hang up the phone. Gets back on. They're like, "We're sending police. To, you know, to your way. Stay
1: where you are. Are you okay?" Like, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah." These are things you don't hear every day. Um, and I'm sure the dispatchers don't either. Right. But he borrowed somebody's phone to call police. And then when police show up to the all subs, he thanked them. Right. He did repeatedly. Thank you guys. Yep. absolutely. And
2: actually, I think there were 15, 16 body camera videos. I watched every single one of them. And I kept a tally, actually, of every time that he thanked them because I just thought that that was so interesting. And it also spoke to just how, I guess, good he felt getting this off his chest. He was like, thank you. You know, you guys listened. You showed up. Appreciate it. Thanks for taking your time to be here. It was just, I even remember seeing on the body camera, he voluntarily puts his hands behind his back to be cuffed. Right. So how many times did he thank officers? I got up to five and I stopped counting um, because I was, I was like, this is just bizarre. Like it was just so, they're literally walking him away to the the patrol car, which is parked on the other side of the gas station. And he just very genuinely says, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for showing up.
0: Well when police or dispatchers they get someone on the phone confessing to say a fourteen year old murder at this point that happened fourteen years ago to be clear, I'm sure the next thing that they are asking themselves, and I think you kind of see this in your story a little bit is whether or not that this person who's confessing can actually sort of prove it or get the evidence in front of police to, to sort of prove that what he's saying is true. so to ask you, how did officers in this case prove that Peralta was telling the truth about what he knew or said he knew.
2: They were very suspicious. Right off the top, you can tell they're hesitant because, I mean, somebody just confessed to a murder. They didn't realize how long ago it happened. He does say it happened a while ago because they're wondering, Mm -hmm. do we have a scene right now that we need to get to, right? Then they take him back to the station, question him a little bit. He says, I can take you to where it is. They're like, okay. the problem is he can't remember everything, but he can't remember everything they find out because it was 14 years ago. This was 2008. So and he was a 20 year old at the time doing the math. Eventually, they realize he's telling the truth because the detail he does remember is exactly where the body is buried, where he buried, where he says he buried William Blodgett and they end up. Finding him there.
1: In the story you put together for the newscast, you did have police lapel video showing them literally unearthing the remains of William Blodgett. There's a lot you can't show on television, of course. But what evidence did Peralta lead them to that day? You see him get in the
2: car with the police. It's the detective and the responding officer who had arrested him. The first one to show up on scene. And he's like, okay, nope, it's it's go past this stop sign. He's literally giving them the, the directions to the house. He says it's that white house over there, and then if you go into just see that like side building, um, I buried him in there. It's very casual. It's very nonchalant.
1: Yeah, right here. Next house. This white one. Yeah. This white one here. Yeah.
2: the area that looks like a room added on to the home they're like what do you mean he says yeah he's in he's in that um, like add on it looks like an added on room or shed or something so they're like okay then kind of fast forwarding you see from multiple different body cameras um, the officers in this tiny room literally with a shovel let's pull this up the see you can hear them digging in the dirt, trying to find something. There starts to be this, like, discussion. Is that a shoe? I think that's a shoe. Is that, what is that? Could that really be a shoe? I think that is. Okay, what if we, you know, dig here? And they end up pulling out a shoe. I oh, do that's a
0: shoe. Yeah, I
2: think it is. It was jarring to watch the first time. They say, yep, this is a shoe. You see him kind of turn it, and Blodgett's remains are inside that shoe. And they realize, okay, we need to get a search warrant. And then, you know, we stopped watching from there. Also, you know that a, a different team had to come in and, and do the rest of the work. That's not a patrol or detective's patrol officer or detective's job. Um, and we saw in evidence photos, they found
1: all of Blodgett. Wow. wow. So I heard a question that Peralta asked the officers right there at the scene in the lapel video. Why didn't they find this body sooner? It was at the house where he lived, correct? The question was, how come they couldn't smell his body?
2: Which was, oh, it just gave me the heebie-jeebies hearing him ask that. But it's a good question, right? There's a dead man in a house. You'd think, you know, you're going to smell a body rotting over time, right? And the criminal complaint that charges him with this murder of William Blodgett now Includes a piece of the police report taken actually in January of 2009. So two weeks after he had actually been killed, we find out. It says that an officer goes for a welfare check to uh, Blodgett's home. And it doesn't look like anything happened in here. We don't see any signs of foul play. They hear a few things. Um, They end up sending out a cadaver dog, no hits on the cadaver dog even, but they mentioned that it smelled because there was like dead vermin around. So you have to wonder, I don't know how cadaver dogs work, right? I mean, but you just have to, something just wasn't right back then. now in hindsight, as you read um, this report, but honestly, it, it is a good question. I think it was just also an area that maybe nobody would have gone into.
0: Your story obviously focused on the lapel camera, um, the body camera video, and a lot of the evidence of even the investigation that happened in the past. And I wanted to, to also ask if you had heard from Roswell police or the victim's family in this case.
2: I did reach out to the victim's family trying to get a hold of them. My understanding is that they're not in. This area, They live in other parts of the state, and that's from other reports, um, other news reports. I have not been able to get a hold of them, but I did see from um, another local news report that uh, they, they had interviewed his daughter. And she mentioned, you know, we're in shock, as anybody would be. It's been 14 years since your dad went missing. But they're grateful that they have some answers. I think, you know, that's kind of the feeling any of us would have.
1: What about Roswell police? Did they, I mean, clearly they thought this was significant enough to write a press release about, but have you heard from them at all? Haven't really chatted with them much. I did reach out
2: initially just to kind of clarify some things. One thing I really wanted to know on the lapel, you see somebody at the front door of the house and you see police talking to them, but you don't see the conversation happening. And so I was wondering because the video also makes it look as though nobody's living in this house, it's uh, a mess. Um, so I had asked, was anybody living there at the time that you guys are you know, unearthing this body? And again, it, the body was found in a part of the home that really nobody probably would have been in. It looked all, almost like a storage facility. A spokesperson for the department did tell me, yes, somebody was living there at the time. I said, was it legal? You know, were they squatting? Because, again, I mean, William Blodgett was living in that home when he went missing. And we don't know if it was sold or anything like that. I was told, yes, somebody was living in the home at that time. They couldn't tell me if it was legally or, or illegally.
0: What is next for this case at this point? Obviously, there was an arrest made. Charges, it sounds like, have been filed. But what is next for this case? Have any other proceedings happened yet or or been scheduled out or anything like that?
2: He was pretty immediately charged with first-degree murder, willful and deliberate, for the death of William Blodgett. The case, typically you have a preliminary exam, hear some testimony and decide if it's going to go to trial. He waived that preliminary exam. And uh, trial, the date was actually just set this week. Trial is set for October 31st, so about four months from now, four, uh, four or five months from now.
1: What did you learn about the motive for this murder back in 2008?
2: It's interesting. In the criminal complaint, they say, you know, we're not certain of the motive here. But in the 2009 police report, it mentions that there was some sort of maybe argument between Tony Peralta and William Blodgett. A friend told police that William Blodgett had told them, I accused Tony Peralta of stealing my wallet. I think this guy's stealing money from me. And I tried to evict him. We don't know if he successfully evicted him. And then Tony came back we don't know if that immediately then resulted in an argument and um, Blodgett's murder. But we do know that in the confession interviews with police, Peralta's that's kind of brought up to Peralta. He says, no, this wasn't over a wallet. I, I had no excuse. I had no reason to do this. That's kind of towards the end. That's the final interview. But earlier, he told police I was on meth at the time, and I freaked out because he wouldn't give me any money.
0: Did it happen at the house? It did. It did? I was I was on meth really bad. Okay. And I killed him because he didn't give me no money. And I buried him in his house.
2: So money has to be central here. Something happened. And drugs. Yes, again, because he did say he was on on meth at the time of the murder.
1: And Peralta was renting a room, so he was like a tenant in Blodgett's home at the time.
2: Yes, Blodgett was his landlord. It appears there were probably two rooms in the home just based off of the reports that I've read, and
1: they each lived in one of them. Got it. And Peralta mentioned that he was on meth at the time in his 20s when this murder took place and even said to police in his interview, that Blodgett was a good man and didn't deserve this.
0: Well, that he was a good man and did what I did. He was always good to me, and I took his life for no reason. And I don't have an excuse.
1: One of the questions I had after hearing Peralta's confession was, is he still on any sort of drugs at the time of his confession, or was his coming clean, if you will, also, a result of him not doing meth or hard drugs anymore.
2: I've heard that theory from a lot of people, a lot of friends who reached out after watching the story saying, Wow, do you think that this was him? You know, he's now clean and sober and, and realizing I, I, I need to, you know, completely get this off my chest. That was a lot of the chatter online as well, a lot of the suspicion. He does tell police I'm no longer on meth. But we do know when he confessed, he said, I had a drink and I've taken some blood pressure medication to kind of really help me come forward today and say this. They clarify, do you still want to confess? Do you still want to be here? And he says over and over again, yes, I did this. I mean, the amount of times that he said, I did this, I killed him. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, they know, right, that they had the right person.
1: And there are like such things as false confessions, right? Hence the, I guess, initial suspicion that investigators had when somebody's confessing to a 14-year-old murder case. But in his conversation with police, you can see in Ann's story, he's crying, right?
0: I just don't want to cry.
1: He, he looks remorseful to the objective viewer, I think.
2: He ends up crying in what I believe is probably the the fourth conversation with police. You can tell he's just exhausted. He has repeated himself multiple times. He said the same thing every time. You can tell he's frustrated with that, but I do believe that that's a police tactic to make sure that he's going to tell the exact same story every time. But yeah, it's that, that final interview that I have on lapel a detective who was actually called in to handle the case says, look, I'm clueless as to what's been going on. You know, you need to talk me through this. The first thing Tony Peralta says is I don't want to talk anymore. And you kind of see that look change right in his face, the emotion start to come and he weeps. And the officer says, or the detective says, it's off your shoulders now, man. And you kind of hear that just like get louder. And I think it really was him just letting go of 14 years of a secret of guilt. Um, just really letting loose finally, I think.
0: Is there anything else about this case that you would like to share that perhaps we didn't ask you directly about?
2: What I found interesting William Blodgett was technically killed Christmas Eve, 2008. That's the date that they're putting on this. Cause that's the last time that anybody had ever heard from him. They don't file the missing persons report until early January of 2009. But we do know from the police report from 2009, that's included in this, that they did talk to Peralta again. I, you know, I told you that the, the, Friend of Blodgett told police it could be this guy. They had some sort of argument. He tried to evict him. And so it states in the police report that they not only had the cadaver dog out there, but they went and interviewed Peralta. No new leads. It doesn't say anything about what that interview included or anything like that. You can imagine you've also got somebody who's on meth that you're probably trying to interview. Who knows how well that went and what you could have possibly gotten out of him. So that's 2008-2009. He doesn't really have any encounters with police for several more years after that. He doesn't leave Roswell. These are all encounters with Roswell police that I found in his court record. He encounters police six different times. He's arrested for for, uh, burglary of a shed, disorderly conduct being a public nuisance, evading arrest at one point from police. These result in a little bit of jail time here and there, but really nothing significant. I did look through in those previous reports which officers were involved in those and if any of them overlapped with this case. And there was one officer, um, which I thought was interesting, who is involved in showing up on May 1st.
1: So possibly knew Peralta from a previous just encounter. Yes. And then, okay. Which I think
2: also may have been why they were suspicious of him. They knew that this guy had a history of drug use. They knew he kind of had done some lower level crimes, but also because of his drug use, he couldn't remember the details. It's just so fascinating to me that the one detail he does remember is exactly where he buried William Blodgett's body.
0: And I think as your story pointed out, he couldn't remember the address of the home. No. But he knew how to get there in sort of that mental roadmap of driving through streets and eventually led police right to the body of William Blodgett, yeah.
2: Can you imagine being that officer in the front seat and you've got the guy in the back, he's just confessed to a murder, you don't know how long ago it happened and you're listening to him tell you okay, now go to this stop sign and then you'll hang a left and then, okay, it's not that house. It's going to be that, that house.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think the other point to that is it could be very easily written off. We have seen that, you know, I can't point to any direct examples, but I feel like there certainly are instances where, you know, people over the years confess to crimes and they get written off because, you know, uh, there are also other people out there that just sort of say things to end the conversation with police and find out later that it's not true. So. Could have easily been written off in this case, but police went with it, and I'm sure they're glad that they did at this point.
1: Remarkable case. Thanks for sharing it with us, and we appreciate your reporting. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again to Anne Perret for joining us here for a pretty fascinating conversation about what happened to William Blodgett and how this murder case involving. Tony Ray Peralta has now unfolded. I think what's gonna be interesting now is to see how it evolves in the courtroom because we all know a lot of things can change in the process of actually putting a case out into the court system. If it will go to trial or if Mr. Peralta will seek to maybe make a plea deal in this case. Interesting questions to keep our eye on here in the future.
1: Yeah, we'll be sure to keep you posted. And in the meantime, feel free to pitch us your story ideas. Who would you like to hear from? What stories would you like to hear from us? I am at Gabrielle.Burchard at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media.
0: I'm also Chris.McKee at krqe.com and at TV. Thanks for
1: listening.